This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. A blind cannonball into old karma is how Sortilege describes today's scene. And she sure ain't kidding. All of the forces kicked up by Doc's action and inaction, his heroism and his complicity. Well, let's just say they all came back to visit him today with more than a few baseball bats and cosmic debts, all demanding to be paid and signed for on the dotted line or else. So there's a passage in chapter 18 of Thomas Pinchon's Inherent Vice, and it goes like this. On top of the desk was a half-eaten glazed donut and a paper container of coffee, and behind it was Adrian, silent and staring. Heated downtown smog light filtered in from the window behind him, light that could not have sprung from any steady or pure scheme of daybreak more appropriate to ends or conditions settled for, too often only after token negotiation. It would be hard to read anybody, let alone Adrian Prussia, in light like this. Doc tried anyway. And that is where myself and today's guest are at, trying to read this strange sequence in the muted, milky smog light that makes up so much of Inherent Vice, the film's oddball and at times inscrutable haze. It's a scene that is both a pastiche of the private eye novel and an existential abstraction, which is why today's guest is so well suited to the task of digging into it as the phrase, both a pastiche of the private eye novel and an existential abstraction are his, which he used to describe the tone of the entire film in general during a recent conversation with me off air. And genre pastiche and existential abstractions are something he knows a thing about. I find his work, including the absolutely stunning recent novel, Blacktop Wasteland. Buy it, buy it, buy it, buy it. Again, it's called Blacktop Wasteland. Go fucking buy it. I find his work to be that of an author who couches his deeply human characters and concerns within the chassis of classic, existentially driven noir and crime tales. So I could not be more excited to welcome this man to the show to talk crime and noir and PTA and a little bit about this uh, inherent, vi- inherent Vice flick that I just mentioned. S.A. Cosby, thanks for coming on the show today. And thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I've actually been a fan of the, of the show for a while. So I'm so honored to be, a, um, be on here with you. This is great. I am honored to have you. I'm going to out honor you. We're just going to go back and forth and tell each other because, you know, hey, you've had a capital S summer this year, man. I got to say, congrats on the book. God damn. It's incredible. It is my favorite read of 2020. And oh, man. thank you so much. I hope you've braced yourself because it's finally here. The apex of not only this summer, but all your long, hard work with this novel coming at you with a thunderclap. It's not someone like Stephen King name-dropping Blacktop on Twitter like he did last week. 
it's you getting to come on a podcast and talk about inherent vice. You've made it, man. Congrats. I got to say. You know, man, uh, I've had many dreams and many hopes <laughs> and desires. Young, as a young rule, wannabe writer and uh I feel like, you know, it's all downhill after this. I don't, I don't know what else I'm going to do. It's like, this uh, is the pinnacle yeah. of my artistic endeavors. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing a little too hard at that. A little too hard at that. <laughs> no, man, this is great. I, I love, uh, anybody who knows me, I love talking about films, and, and I'm a big fan of, 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 you know, film noir. And, uh, you know, in the movie itself, man, like I said, it's this weird hybrid it, it accomplishes a lot of things at the same time in a way i didn't appreciate when i saw it in theater so <laughs> well um, let's let's do the thing before we do any other thing uh and that thing is this a pretty damn common arc amongst a lot of guests and i'd assume a lot of folks out there who managed to return to view inherent vice more than once is the first time they see it they don't like it it does not work for them. And then they come back to it for, for whatever reason, including sometimes to do this show. Uh, and then they find there's, there's a little something extra under the surface that maybe they didn't catch that first time. And as I understand it, you had a bit of a similar experience with your first dance with Inherent Vice. You were in a bad right, mood. So, you were in a bad yeah. mood. So let me tell you the story about how this happens. So Inherent Vice comes out and... Uh, I'm uh, still working at my previous job, which was for a, a national hardware retail chain. And I was, uh, um, was dating somebody and they were uh, trying to pick, we, we had a thing as we were dating that we pick a movie and then the next week and somebody else picked out the movie. Well, she had picked a movie the weekend before. So this was supposed to be my turn to pick the movie. And when I went over there, to pick her up she was like well i want to see this movie in hair and vice and i was like well it's my turn to pick a movie and she's like well i want to see it <laughs> it's like okay but we went to see that movie and then you know inherent vice i think suffered my viewing experience of inherent vice suffered for the dissolution of a poor relationship i was in and so <laughs> when i went to the theater i was sitting there I was like a kid who's been forced to go to like his his aunt's Tupperware party or something. And I just, I wasn't receptive to the movie at all. I love Joaquin Phoenix and I love Thomas Pynchon. And uh, I um, am a huge um, PTA fan. Magnolia is one of my favorite films. And, um, but I just wasn't in the right headspace. And the more she enjoyed it, the angrier I got. So by, by the end of the movie, I was just saying, I was on my phone. I was commenting to the guy to the left of me because he didn't want to be there either. And, uh, you know, we ended up, and her advice didn't break us up, but we ended up breaking up not long after that. And so for me, it was always one of those movies that I couched and referenced in the contextual situation of, oh, remember I was going with so-and-so and I went to see this dumbass movie that she picked. And so <laughs> I wow. was listening. Yeah, so that's, that was my first go-around. That was my first go-around with the movie. And then, uh, uh, was it last year, early this year, when you had Jordan Harper on and you guys were talking about it and I followed Jordan on Twitter. And um, I was like, you know, I need to like give this movie another chance because a lot of people I respect like this movie. And so I went back and looked at it again, and it was better. I was like, oh, man, I really give the movie a chance. And then just last weekend before, you know, we, we had talked about me coming on, I said, I need to watch it again just so I can, get a, I can have something to talk about and, and talk about intelligently. And this last time, 
I really saw a lot of different shades in it that I maybe wasn't appreciating early on, um, especially Joaquin Phoenix performance. Um, the performance of uh, a lot of non-actors in the film, they're really good, or non-professional actors, I guess I should say. Yeah. Um, you know, Keith Jardine. I'm a big MMA fan, so like I, I was like, you know, I'm drawn to Keith Jardine. He, he did surprisingly well. Um, I am, uh, I am a, a, a person who has been a young man, so I knew who Belladonna was. Um, and um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And so it was interesting to see his ability, PTA's ability to get great, really good performances out of these people who are not traditional actors, in addition to the really incredible cast as part of this movie too, so. I mean, he's, he's an actor's director. And that's yeah. why I think one of the things that makes this film so strong is it is him kind of going back to that ensemble world and when you have a director who one of one of his greatest strengths, because he's he's not exactly a slouch uh, behind mm-hmm. the camera, but one of his myriad of strengths is how great he is with actors. And so when you mm-hmm. have a film that is just front loaded with like 14, 15 stars and then yeah. a, like a, a, a constellation of like smaller performers or smaller, not so much movie stars, but just great character actors. Mm-hmm. It's it's he's just punching you in the face over and over yeah. again with his talent with this film. It's sensory overload. It's 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 it is it's sensory it is. and artistic overload. And I think maybe that's what would put me off initially because yeah. um, I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan, film fan. I like big bombastic movies and I like small quiet movies. And so you know, like I said, I like Magnolia, but I like The Master. I'm a huge fan of his early um, Hard Eight. And so you know, um, it was just so much going on. And I think it's a movie that is deceptively simple but it requires a lot of attention from the viewer. And I, the first time I saw it, I was not paying attention. I remember how she wanted more popcorn because she had gone, and I was like, go get your own damn popcorn. We were, it was a, you know, I was watching her advice and the dissolution of this relationship at the same time. And so oh I was not in a good headspace. And so again, watching it last weekend at home um, on my TV with earphones on and lights off, and I see so much more in the movie than I noticed the first time. And I think I didn't give the movie enough credit for the, the complex things that it's doing, but they make it look simple, you know? And so um, I definitely am, uh, you know, and it's not my usual, like my background is I'm from rural Virginia. We were talking earlier and you're from the Ozarks. And so, you know, and I still live in Virginia and um, I have a love of, of a certain type of film, like the rough hewn, you know, I'm a big fan of, of 70s B-movie schlock, so. Oh, like, God, like, same. And, uh, you know, Thunder, well, not Thunder Road, but Rum Runners and Dirty uh, Dirty, uh, Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry and, 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 and all of that stuff. So there's a certain aspect of those films that, that I don't want to say hyper-masculine, but just, like I said, just a roughness, a toughness, a, a, a uh, uh, unbridled, uh, Ex- exoskeleton and exists in those movies um, that they wrap themselves in. And, and her advice is really whimsical and fantastical until you get to the scene with Adrian Prussia and then it reverts back to traditional private eye tropes rather brutally and quickly in yeah. a way that's jarring almost. And I, I, I find that incredibly interesting as a viewer. I'm, I'm intrigued as a viewer as to how, you know, PTA is able to shift the tone 
and jarring, but not in a bad jarring. It's not nails on the on the chalkboard. It's you know, it's the uh, siren call of a, of a horn being laid on at an intersection. And so it definitely uh, is something that I probably will watch again. Like I'm a big fan of Pulp Fiction. I've seen Pulp Fiction more countless times, and uh, I always see something in that movie that. I didn't see before I, I reevaluate something in that movie in a different way than I did the first time. And I think that the inherent vice is kind of becoming like that for me. Maybe not as much as Pulp Fiction, I'll be honest, but it's definitely a movie that has multiple layers and I didn't I didn't really appreciate it the first time we'll go around. And I wonder why that is. Like I get that. Like even someone like me, like I I know I'm in the minority that when I when I walked out of the theater the first time. I had the biggest, most angelic smile on my face. Like I knew I had met my movie when I watched this. This is, you know, I've said it so many times on this show before. When you have PTA directing a movie that begins with basically the big sleep type premise for its first mm -hmm. eight minutes, it just goes full the big sleep. You've got cans, vitamin C blaring. You got a neon font. I'm done. I'm good. Like the movie could just turn to shit after that. I'll be like, yeah, but those first eight minutes, do you remember that? That was the stuff. And so the fact that the, for me, the whole film lived up to that introduction. I was, I was, it was love at first sight for me, but I also do understand that hell, one of the reasons that I continue to do this show, despite being, you know, a, mad, a madman is that <laughs> through talking to all of the guests that come on, I keep discovering all these layers that I, you know, I, I can't even tell you at this point how many times I've watched the film. I've lost track. Like, it, it's a lot. It's, it's mm -hmm. a disturbing amount. Um, <laughs> genuinely disturbing. Uh, but that said, if I watch it on my own, I kind of start, I stop losing track of, 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 of catching new things and seeing new things. But then for every guest that comes on, invariably, there's some point where they say something where I'm like, oh, my God, I never caught that that was right there. It was, he buried it, PTA buried it in the mix, but it's in there. And there's something so amazing about that. And it's, it's interesting. I, I, it's interesting you brought up, brought up the big sleep because the, the similarities go beyond just the introduction. The big sleep is notable. There's a great old bit of Hollywood lore. Not sure you, I'm not sure you've heard it where they, uh, the producers or the directors of the big sleep call, uh, <laughs> they call Raymond Chandler like, Hey, who shot the chauffeur? And he's like, how the hell am I supposed to know? And, <laughs> and, and to me, that's the, that's the, uh, the existential, you know, PI uh, uh, plot point or motif or metaphor, whatever you want to call it. In films and books like this, the, the solution to the mystery is not the most important thing. It definitely is the journey is the most important thing. And I think, now this is where I'm gonna be real nerdy. I think that's what bugged me about Inherent Vice the first time, outside of my uh, fractured uh, romantic entanglement, um, was I felt as somebody who wanted to be a writer, I had these very rigid ideas about plot. You know, yeah. this is gonna be real crafty, nerdy. I should get my, uh, I should get my uh, blazer with the patches on it. But I had these real rigid ideas about plot. And I was very, I'm still very paranoid myself as a writer about plot holes. I'm obsessed with them. And I felt in the initial viewing, well, okay, okay, well, here's Wolf, you know, Wolfman, and here's Tariq, and all right, and there's a skinhead dead, and I don't see how this is all tying up. And even when I got to the end, I was like, well, okay, that happened, that happened, but how is that 
tied it. And, and what happened to the dentist that got killed? And so it wasn't the fact I wasn't following the movie. I was following the movie fine. I felt a little cheated. I felt like, man, he's playing real loose and fast with these conventions that, you know, I hold sacred to my heart as a mystery and crime writing fan. And then later on, as I got into my own writing and, and, and stuff, I, I, I really loosened up on those principles. And I read an article, I've read a lot of stuff about writing. And, you know, Elmer Leonard has a famous line, if it sounds like writing, throw it out. And I think yeah. if you were to relate that to PTA in this movie, I think he did a similar thing where if it sounds like a traditional private eye movie, throw it out. If it looks like regular filmmaking, throw it out. Because he's, he's, he's trying to create a certain world in this movie. And, and, and he's doing a lot of world building in this movie. He drops you in media res really with, with Doc and, and, Sha and, um, and Shasta. And he's, he's really fearless doing that. A lot of filmmakers wouldn't do that because again, there's a guy like me, a big nerdy dude in the audience who's like, well, you didn't explain this and you didn't explain <laughs> it. And, and, um, actually, and so um, I was that guy and I think I matured. Honestly, I think I really did in, in more ways than one, just not just a film. I appreciate your film, but now watching it, it's like it has <laughs> now this is really stretching. I, rem I was reminded of Joaquin's other film role that is a deconstruction of the hard oil um, genre. Um, you were never really here. Oh, I love that. Movie. And um, a similar thing on first view of that, I was kind of bugged. And then watching it again, I saw what she was going for. I, I personally don't feel it's as successful as Inherent Vice is in, in the deconstruction, if you will. But I, I can see it's a valuable and interesting take on uh, on the genre. And uh, I'm really interested in pushing the envelope of the genre. So I'm, 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 my appreciation for the film has grown exponentially, especially the more I'm writing my own stuff. Well, God, that's a lot to work with. And before I dive in, I gotta say, you know, I don't want to belabor your relationship history here but you should be nice because if if that ex old was an inherent vice fan she you don't know she might be listening to this you might be hurting her feelings so just be gentle be gentle oh no she's she's a wonderful person and we're at much, we're much better <laughs> friends than we were boyfriend and girlfriend and we've had this conversation before uh you you know in in the past so no she's not it, it, that relationship <laughs> was not her fault it was in and it was it was a it was a, hey like i said her advice was not the reason that we, you know we got arguing over popcorn so <laughs> which is kind of kind of a big part of inherent vice it's about you know how does that apply yeah. to XO ladies it things oh, in yeah. things in you were oh, yeah. that's the thing you had the unique experience you had a the very pinchon-esque meta experience of undergoing a breakup about a movie that is ostensibly about breakups about XO yeah, I'm sure you were loving that at the time. I'm sure you were really sitting there going, "Wow, I'm having oh, it was great. great. Yeah, I'm having a like, really great pension esque experience here as I'm watching yeah, this." Yeah, I was like, "Well, I'm gonna write this in my journal because you know I'm gonna need this later." <laughs> I drown my sorrows in, in Captain Morgan. Um, it's funny though that you said that. I, I want to touch on that for a second. It really is a movie about relationships, and it's oh yeah, it's using it's using the PI structure as the honey to make the medicine go down. You know, and, 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 you know, with Shasta and, and, and Doc, you know, uh, and we're going to talk about the, the, a specific scene later, but that scene toward the end when she comes over and uh, I, I don't want to be too, uh, I don't want to be too monosyllabic 
uh, old school man in this, but I think a lot of people, I'll say like this universally, I don't, I don't say men, I think anybody's, a lot of people have gone through that. You've had that experience where you have this ex that you're in and out of each other's lives and you'll tell yourself, you know, it's, it's, it's the sex, man. It's the sex. The yeah. sex is so hot. That's why I can't let go of them. I can't, to quote another movie, that's why I can't quit them. Um, but deep down inside, it's not just the sex. Deep down inside, the connection is because there's something there with that person that you can't let go of. And with Shasta, when she comes out of the, you know, she comes out from out of the shadows and she just got the necklace on and, you know, yeah, we're initially titillated by the nudity, you know, it's like, wow, she's, she's naked. But then there's this light, and he does this great thing. A lot of other filmmakers would have been right into it. It would have been frenzied and passionate. It would have been, uh, uh, you know, it would have been fatal attraction on the sink. It would have been, you know, based instinct against the wall or even. And she gets like a five-minute monologue. Yeah, and it's like, it's one of the, uh, not to gross anybody out, it's one of the most erotic things I've seen in a film. It's really this tension. And I think, and again, I guess I, I have to really specialize. Special, I think a lot of guys have been there where it's not that you want her to hurry up and shut up. You just can't believe that this tension is building and building and building. And when finally there is that metaphorical and physical and actual literal release, it's like, it's just an incredible, like, wow. You know, I felt that was one of the times in the movie where I felt like you were saying about this very meta experience. I think I, I think a lot of people have been there where it's like, yeah. man, this person, I know this person's probably no good for me. But I just can't leave him alone, and that's Doc. That's Doc's whole thing. The whole movie hinges on that idea. I think, in my personal. Well, uh, no, I, I totally agree, and I think uh, PTA agrees with you as well. In, in the in the press cycle for this film, when he was talking about it, and someone said, "You know, what is this about? It's about film noir." And he's like, "Ah, oh, you know, the, the noir stuff, not so much." He's like, "For me, it's it's about um, it's about that one ex old lady that you can't let go of, and you know you should." But he's like, "You mm-hmm. know she's wrong for you. You know she's not right for you." But you're sitting there on a Friday night thinking, who's she talking to? Who's she fucking? Who's she thinking about? Yeah. Is she thinking of me? Is she not thinking of me? Knowing that you shouldn't be thinking those things, but there's ju- it's just this thing you can't let go of. And of course, in the book, you know, Pinchon, he, he makes it far more about this, he, he, him, about Pinchon himself being, he's this older man looking back at the, the era of his counterculture and its failure mm-hmm. and unable to kind of let go of that and let go of that rage. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, PTA so so transmutes that into a story about just not being able to let go of that ex old that that person that grabbed your heart. It's funny. And knowing I watched that. You can. I know we're gonna talk about the other scene, but I watched that scene, and in my head, there's this beautiful, gorgeous song by Jeff Buckley called "Lover, Lover, You Should Have Come Over." Oh, and uh, oh, I'm a big Jeff guy. Yeah, and so when I watched that scene, that was playing in my head, like that whole scene where she comes out of the dark, and it's like. Again, I, not to be too delve too much into my own life, but I've been there. I've been in that situation where it's like you're sitting in that room, in that living room, and you're like, "Don't come out, but naked. Please don't be naked. I'm naked. I'm not gonna be able to do this." And it's like, you know, I'll, I'll be. I'll tell you real quick, real quick. I'll tell you a funny story. So there wasn't. This is years and years ago. Um, when I was in my twenties, I'm, I'm. I'll be. I'll be 47 on my birthday, but. I was in my 20s and I was doing this whole, I had a period in my life where I did this Jack Kerouac thing where I left Virginia and I went to New Mexico and hung out there for a couple of years with these people that lived on a commune sort of thing. And they were, I met this young lady out there and, uh, you know, it was just one of those things where I know she's wrong for me, but I was a bright eyed, bushy tailed country boy in the big city of Albuquerque. <laughs> Albuquerque. And um, 
we had broke up and everything and she'd asked me to come over um to help fix something at her apartment and i went over and i fixed it it was like her garbage disposal or some shit and uh Basically, I fixed it by just ramming a fucking like uh, wrench and screwdriver down it until it started working, which is terribly dangerous. And uh, she said, "Well, look, sit down. I'm gonna get you something to drink. I'll be right back." And I'm like, "All right." And I'm sitting down, and this little voice in my head was like, "She's gonna come out there, and she's either gonna be naked or she's gonna be wearing a t-shirt, and that's gonna be it. And you have to be prepared to say no and get up and leave." And there was another little voice in my head that was like, "You are not going any fucking where. I don't know why you lying to yourself." And she came out, you know, and she was she was wearing a t-shirt and the little cut-off sweatpants. And for a brief moment, I was like, this is a horrible idea. I should not do this. But you can't help yourself. You feel like, you know, you're falling over a waterfall. And I think, you know, I think I think looking at uh Doc, and not even in the beginning of the movie and in that scene, and then as the movie progresses towards its conclusion. I'm actually happy for Doc and Shasta. I'm happy. Maybe there are some, sometimes people you can't let go of for a reason. You shouldn't. And I think, think that's uh, the deal. Well, as we're jumping around, uh, Pinchon's style and hair and vice style, you think they, I mean, I know they're riding off into the fog together, but you think they ride off into the sunset together? You think they make it? The, the optimist, the romantic in me says yes, but the realist in me says no, because people like Shasta, they're very transitory in their feelings. And people like Doc, this is a man or woman. And people like Doc, for all of Doc's faults and foibles, and he's a little bit too much for stoner, he's a little, but he's smarter than he lets on. I think yeah. that's something I like to talk about a little bit. I think that his whole persona is a little bit of an affectation. Um, but we're but coming. I think people, yeah, but I think people like Shasta, she's very much in the moment. And in that moment, she wants to be with Doc. But two weeks from now, you know, she'll meet a, you know, she'll meet a humanities professor who's the world's leading expert on Proust and she'll be gone. And, well, and, you, and Doc will always be waiting for her. I actually think that that's kind of a lot about of what that sex scene is about that you mentioned. You know, for me, a big part of that scene is almost, you know, you were talking about, you know, I think a big trope in, in, in noir fiction and crime fiction is, you know, especially because historically so many of the protagonists of those stories have been men, they all mm -hmm. kind of de facto become inquiries and investigations into masculinity as well, mm -hmm. um, oh, for, yeah. for better for better and for worse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, I, and I, I hear what you're saying, you know, the first time you're watching the movie, you're like, well, where is that shit in this movie? Where is that? Yeah. For me, yeah. I, I, you know, I think that as a, you're someone who has enjoyed a good handful of PTA films, then you know that the idea of masculinity and something it's its toxicity is often something that falls under his microscope. And mm. I do think it does so in this film. And I, I think especially in this sequence or not in this sequence, but in the sex scene, for me, a big part of that scene is Shasta kind of trying to hold a mirror up to him. You know, she, she opens that, mm -hmm. that moment up by saying, what kind of girl do you really need doc? And mm -hmm. I think that that's her way of saying, you think that you want x type of girl and you think mm -hmm. that i am that type of woman and mm -hmm. i'm trying to tell you like i think a big part of her explaining like well this is what i let mickey wolfman do to me this is i let him mm -hmm. share me with other people and take his friends right right and she's like i'm telling you that i'm that's something that i want and that's something that horrifies you and it's almost like she's saying look at who i am and 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 deconstruct this very kind of toxic 
fantasy you have of me as the the, the hippie girl, the hippie gal with the country joe and the fish t-shirt and bottom half mm-hmm. of a flower print bikini that's just going to always mm-hmm. bring you a beer and get high with mm-hmm. you and chill like that's not me and it's almost mm-hmm. like she had to confront him with the real woman that she is and it's, I, it's why i think that sex scene is so galvanizing is yeah. for the first time he's actually touching the real shasta and looking at the real shasta and I seeing past he, his his masculine ideal of who shasta was mm-hmm. in his mind but never truly was in real life i think we as men do that a lot i think and I oh think yeah that's a true i think that's a trope that definitely needs to be de- deconstructed in noir fiction um you know, I wrote a book before Black Tie Wasteland called My Darkest Prayer, and it was really a, a, a homage to that style of writing. And um, there's a character in there who is a, an adult film actress, and my protagonist doesn't fall in love with her, but he, he begins to care about her. And he tries at certain points to tell her, well, you know, I'm not going to judge you, you know, for being a film, adult film actress. It's none of my business. And she basically confronts him like, no, this is what I do. I have sex for money on camera. I'm okay with that. I got a nice house. I got a nice car. I know who I am. Because I think men, we do that a lot. We do that. We put women on pedestals that they didn't ask for. And then we get upset when they come, they step down. Like, how dare you climb down off this pedestal that I put you on? And I think Doc does that with Shasta. It's not even. It's not even a step down. It's a, it's a step down in the man's in the man's. Oh, I don't mean. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I don't mean like a step. Down. I mean, like we uh, we put them on this pedestal, and then when they dare to move, like we put yeah. them on the statues, and they're real people. And yeah. when they dare to have agency, is when we are like, "What are you doing?" You know. And I and I think that that's so much of what this story is one of the many things that this story is about because this story is about a lot of goddamn things but i think that i think that a a huge burning red thread that is not easily seen the first time because i I remember when the film first came out a lot of reviews they hit that scene as like the worst thing in the film that comes out of nowhere it doesn't mean anything it's a tonal shift for no point it's just depressing for depressing sake and i remember thinking god no this is you know i've i've wrestled with that scene a lot um you know, because I think about this movie way too much, but I think ultimately <laughs> where it where I land on it, and this is kind of where I landed on the episode in which which we spoke about it, is that it is a woman saying like you've got to see past your shit, like you've got to see yeah. past who you think I am, and this and like that's she literally starts the scene dressed as his fantasy of her. She's mm-hmm. back in the the country Joe tee and the bottom mm-hmm. half of the flower print bikini because she's she's literally. She deconstructs that literally by taking those clothes off, mm-hmm. those fantasy clothes mm-hmm. off, and like I don't know how else to say it, like forcing him to fuck the real Shasta, to like she's confront naked. the real Shasta. She's naked physically and emotionally, and yeah, and, and she's forcing him to see this nakedness, this nudity, yeah. that this this is who I am. And I think, you know, and I, I tell you the truth, that book is complex because I think we overcomplicate. Uh, women's sexuality and I think again Doc thinks he's quote unquote and I'm not, I'm not using liberal politically I mean liberal socially or, or psychologically he thinks he's liberal you know he's a he's a stoner man he likes to have a good time you know and everything but really deep down inside he still has a very rigid idea of what the woman that he loves should be and yeah. you know it's just like um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie but there's a movie called Chasing Amy with Ben Affleck oh, yeah. and Joey and um, there's a scene all through the movie. It, it starts with her being in a lesbian relationship, but Ben Affleck still likes her. And all through the movie, 
he's hearing rumors from people about her. Oh, she's this, she's that. And he's putting those rumors aside. I can't believe my, and his friend who hates Joey Lauren Adam because barely that's a whole nother conversation. We ain't got time for that. But he goes out and finds <laughs> proof that um, she did do some of these sexual escapades that he heard about. And so there, there's a famous scene where the bas- they're at a baseball game or football game or something. And he's talking to her, he's edging around. Yeah, and finger cuffs. And, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, and so she's like, oh, you talking about time I let these two guys have sex with me? And he looks shattered. And that was the first time for me as a young man, because I was a big, I was also a big nerdy Kevin Smith devotee for a long time. Forgive me for that moment in my life. But um, <laughs> uh, it was for me as a young man realizing, you know, a woman that I like or a woman that I love or a woman that I care about in an intimate way owes me nothing as far as about her past. Yeah, I, you know, she owes me nothing. She owes me no explanations for anything she did before she met me, because she's her own person. And I'm sad to say that it, I didn't really get that until watching a movie, to seeing it up on screen, you know. And so I think that is what Doc is going through in that particular scene. And like you said, it, people said that scene was jarring. I think what was jarring for me, and I guess, is what we need to get around to was the scene in, in Adrian Prussian's office. I, it, it didn't take me out of the movie, but it's like this really, really intense tonal shift. There's been violence in the movie up to this point. There's been, you know, he's been hit on the head with a baseball bat and one of the other skinheads got killed and, you know, they, they, they got pulled over by the police, which is a hilarious scene. I, I think anybody who's ever been a young person or, or an old person or a person doing some shit they shouldn't be doing and they can, can identify with that. But this is really... <laughs> <laughs> it goes from, you know, bubblegum, technicolor, L.A. noir fantasy dream to freaking something out of like Serpico, you know, um, yeah. in a particular scene, in my opinion, in my opinion. Um, no, no because you, it, you are right. And it is like he descends out of like the L.A. that we know in the beach bum uh, territory, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we're in like Travis McGee, McGee uh, you know, John McDonald territory. Yeah. We're a big yeah. part of this book. Uh, and then out of, a, out of a sudden, we're just in this just very, um, you know, I know that I know you, you haven't been to L.A., but there is a there are parts of L.A. that are very much like the town that dreaded sundowns, like the town that time forgot, where it's just especially downtown and that he falls. It's like he falls out of his like neon bled uh, beachside uh, safe environs. And, he, and we he we find him just on this long, empty street somewhere downtown where everything is just blasted brown and gray yeah. and, it, and, and it's just all asphalt and stucco. And yeah. there's something kind of dark and haunting about that. But, 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 but before, <laughs> before we get to our man, Adrian, before we get him, <laughs> I, I, I am curious a little bit because I, I have you here. So I am going to pick your brain about okay. this. Talk a little bit about crime and noir fiction. And mm-hmm. let's start with the novel. I'm guessing you've read the novel. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have the same feeling about the book when you read it where you were like, this, this meta horse shit, this is too <laughs> clever. Where's, where's, where, where is my Marlowe? Where is my Parker? Like this, this is just too heady. It's too cute. It's too smart for its own good. Or were you able to enjoy it? She liked, liked the book more than the movie. I read it wow. after I saw the movie because again i have some friends that i really respect who really love this movie who you know are really deep into this movie and so i was like man i have a friend named um 
uh, he might be listening. I have a friend named Mark Ross, who's a film fanatic, just a great film buff. And, and, uh, and just as a, as a, just as a fan, a cinephile, he doesn't do it professionally. He just, he knows a lot about movies. And he's like, you should read the book because this movie's really good and it's based on this book. And I think the movie's better. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I read the book and I like um, Pinchon's work. You know, uh, it, it can, it, to me, this was his most accessible book. Uh, oh, for sure. Uh, Bleeding Edge. And it worked better for me initially as a book, but I will say this, and you said some earlier, the book is way more bitter and more so caustic. vitriolic. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's like reading, it's like somebody throwing acid in your eyes repeatedly. And it's like, it dares you to even enjoy it to a certain extent. And again, I kind of, I like that. I jones off that a little bit, but <clears throat> I'm also fascinated with the film in that deconstruction, like with the book, it, it to me it, it strips away any pretense of being a PI novel. It's it's a an examination of his soul and his memories and his inability to look at nostalgia, look at the back at the past with anything but rose colored glasses, and um and it, it it's it's heavy, man. It's heavy, but I like that. I like the, the themes he's talking about. As I get older, themes of regret and 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 opportunities and are lost. Are, are they creep into my work. And so I was like, okay, this is really a PI novel. And I think having seen the movie first, I was more prepared for it not to be the traditional PI novel that I was looking for. Um, and so, yeah, that definitely, I, I, at the time I enjoyed the book more, but as time has gone on, I won't say I enjoy the movie more, but I think it's, it's more 50-50 now. Yeah, see, for me, it, it's always been, uh, it's been an inverse of that, where I dug the book, I thought it was great, but the film I fell for, I fell in love. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, I don't know why, honestly, uh, because, you know, I'm all for everything. I, I love, I love Pinchon and I, I'm all for what he does in that book, especially, you know, um, you know, let's say, let's, let's, since we're talking crime fiction, you know, I, I think that um, there are lived in fully formed born and bred crime novels that just, they play it straight. And then there are mm -hmm. things like Inherent Vice, the novel, which are kind of, they're a little bit more arch, a bit more winking. There's a, you know, mm -hmm. the meta pastiche and they're stripping a lot of the genre for parts uh, mm -hmm. in order to use those parts to comment on certain things in the story, as well as almost mm -hmm. kind of goof on elements of the genre. Like, you mm -hmm. know, like the idea such as in Pinchon's novel that, you know, the, 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 the detective with eight or nine separate cases that are all mm -hmm. actually one gigantic rumbling Raymond Chandler case, mm -hmm. which... The, the book makes a lot of hay out of and the film just kind of is just like, eh, you know, take it or leave it. Don't, don't, don't mind all this anyway. Right, right. Um, and I, I, I love the book and I, or I really enjoyed the book and I thought it was really fascinating because it's like, oh, this is a PI story, but it's a, it's a PI standing over the murder scene of an entire generation. Mm, and that's what, mm -hmm. Pin, you know, Pinchon's anger is directed at is, is, is the death of this generation and this generation's promise. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe it's the, the romantic in me or I'm not quite sure what it is, but there's something about the movie and how the movie inverts that, you know, with Shasta Faye just being kind of a subplot in the book mm -hmm. and kind of a metaphor for this investigation into the death of a generation. The, the film is just, it's an investigation as to how much we miss people, like how much yeah. we just miss people, which makes it in a way also feel very... 2020 appropriate we were just talking 
uh, yeah. before we start recording. I just fucking miss people. I miss people so bad. There's there's people that I haven't met, haven't even met in person that I miss them so badly. Just mm-hmm. just talking to them on the phone or mm-hmm. like on social media, just because it's like I just want to connect so badly with people right now, and I miss being that oh, feeling yeah. of being able to connect and. So much of that is what infuses this film, this sorrow at just how much you can miss a person and how, how oh, that yeah. can rock your world to its core, to where you become a PI trying to piece together how you can actually get back in touch with this one person. And which is weirdly, also I think a big part of the film is almost a kind of a warning though against that because the whole book, or the whole film, excuse me, Doc is chasing after Shasta Faye only mm-hmm. to learn right around now or a couple of scenes beforehand <laughs> that she wasn't the mystery at all. Like the, the disappearance of Shasta wasn't a disappearance. She got on a boat because she wanted to. And this whole yeah. time, this, 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 uh, this American family was being ripped apart under his nose. Mm-hmm. Coy, and the, Coy and the family Harlingen, which actually sounds like a really good band name. Uh, all right. uh, Coy and the family Harlingen. Uh, but the, this family, like this whole time, everybody in this movie has kind of been saying, you know, what are you, are you looking at the Harlingen case? Are you looking at this? Are you doing this? And Doc couldn't because he, his gaze was over here going, well, there's Shasta's gone. Shasta's gone. It's funny because I wonder how much the idea, and I'm talking about in, in, in the character's mind now, how much of the idea was he was locked into this idea of I'm a PI and there has to be a mystery here. I have to solve this mystery yeah. of what happened. And, um, you know, I don't want to be bothered with these other details because this mystery is important. Really, in reality, Shasta is important. There's a book you mentioned about how it deconstructs certain things. There's a book by a great writer, a friend of mine named Rob Hart. He, he wrote a series of novels about a, uh, a PI or a unlicensed investigator named Ash McKenna. One of his books is called New York. And um, I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but it starts with a murder. And the, the Ash is this, he, you know, he's this stereotypical at first, hard drinking, hard living. He's not even a licensed PI. He's just a dude that does stuff. He's a troubleshooter. And he lives in LA, you know, in New York, pre-pandemic New York, one of the greatest cities in the world. And the mystery is very much this idea of trying to solve the mystery of why this person that was murdered that he had a crush on didn't love him back. Yes, she's dead and he's devastated by that, but his drive to solve the mystery is 50% wanting to bring her killers to justice and getting revenge and beating the hell out of them. And 50% somehow answering that question, why didn't you love me? Why didn't you love me enough? Why didn't you love me back? And it it doesn't end the way you think it does. And I love that. I love that. And it's funny. I wonder why, and that's some question I have to ask myself. I wonder why I loved it in that book. And upon initially watching it in this movie, it, it bothered me. And I think it was because two things. When I read that book, I was in, I, I'm still in awe of Rob, but I was really in awe of his ability. And I felt like, reading the book was like an instruction manual because I want to be a writer and I'm a writer. So I'm like, okay, I see what you're doing there. It's like, you know, I'm taking a master class with the film. Sometimes I go into films. I just want to be entertained a little bit. And I wasn't in, again, I wasn't in the right mindset. Like when I went to see the master, right. I knew, okay, this is what the master is about. You know, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's Joaquin Phoenix. It's Amy Adams. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's the wing, wing, nudge, nudge at the founding of a, 
religion, air quotes, and <laughs> these heavy duty actors doing some heavy duty shit. With Inherent Vice, I didn't get that. I thought I was going to see Out of Time with Denzel Washington, or I thought I was going to see, you know, uh, A Walk Among the Tombstones with Liam Neeson. And I wasn't prepared for that. And I wonder how much the marketing campaign hurt the movie initially. Just I think it hurt a lot. I, I you know, you watch, you watch those initial trailers, and I've talked about this on the show before. You think you're going to go see a Naked Gun movie? Like it, yeah. it really plays. It, it plays like a comedic. Like, and you know, you know, I know that fans of the film, and I think even PTA kind of bristle at the idea of like, well, this is not my Big Lebowski. I'm not trying. But the trailer <laughs> sure as shit make it look like it's gonna be. Yeah, uh, yeah, something about definitely. that where it's like it's going to be you know a funny stoner romp or it's going to be and then what's interesting is you know it is those things it does have that very zucker abram zucker naked gun goofballery you know i think of when adrian prussia clocks doc on the back of the head with a baseball bat and he does the little rabbit punch and falls down that like perfect mm -hmm. bit of physical comedy that belongs in the naked gun two and a half or airplane or something like that there are elements of that in the film and there's even elements of that kind of stoner chandler-esque topo la topography of mm. uh the big lebowski but that's not everything the movie is it's like a small component and i do agree i do think that uh, it's also worth noting that i think that this film is the only post boogie nights film in which pta himself did not cut the trailer for the film mm. uh from mm. magnolia onward i believe he's cut all his own trailers except for the marketing mm. campaign for for inherent vice and i think that what happened is you know the poor souls at uh, whatever marketing company warner brothers bought brought this very very complex and difficult film <laughs> to look at that and like shit i don't know make it a comedy maybe let's just <laughs> i don't know uh let's, big let's, let's, too. <laughs> yeah let's let's throw a sam cook on this bitch and go home because I, I don't know what yeah, else basically uh and so yeah i i do think that 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 hurt uh but i also think that you know, I think the film wriggles against every single expectation that, mm -hmm. that you have for it. And that's something I definitely, I think, is the meat of this scene. And I think it's one of the scenes, reasons why this scene is both, it's one of the reasons why I think today's scene is so tonally, feels tonally jarring, is because of the way it's presented. And mm -hmm. I think part of that comes from the general wriggliness of, of, of the story in that, um, to go back to noir fiction and things like that, like I'll say this, you know, it's funny that you talk about how earlier uh, in your writing career, how hyper obsessed and hyper focused you are on plot, 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 plot has to do this, plot has mm -hmm. to do that, has to be airtight. And, you know, it's funny because now I, I feel like reading your work, something like Blacktop Wasteland, I'm going to say it again, Blacktop Wasteland, that's the name of the book, go buy it, go buy it, go buy it. Uh, reading your work like Blacktop Wasteland, what really bleeds through to me, apart how, from how goddamn thrilling it is, is the humanity of it. The character of it, mm -hmm. the characters in it. Well, thank you. And thank you. There are some crime and noir stories. They are they're plot stories, and then some are people stories. I feel like mm -hmm. I feel like I feel like hard or hard boiled. I feel like um, your your book is a hard boiled people story. Uh, uh, more, <laughs> more than it is like a straight. It's not. It's it's not as people story as inherent vice, where it's just there's almost. The plot is does not matter. The plot very much matters in your novel, but I do feel like it's a it's there's a heady mixture of how important the plot is, but it's never more important than the heart of the characters. Whereas, yeah, I mean, to be perfectly honest, the plot 
of blacktop wasteland is pretty simple. It's it's the yeah. proverbial heist one last job yeah. plot trope. It's you know, and everybody knows that trope. You know, from you know, from like you know, a French film like Riffy to Ocean's Eleven um, to you know, any other the the, the Italian job or, or any other heist novel. Um, but and use that to investigate the character. Yeah, I think what I did was honestly, I I, I moved away from that lockstep, rigid, um, Spartan, I've got to make everything in a plot work mentality too. Yeah. Okay, let me use this plot as a device to talk about some things that are near and dear to my heart and maybe will translate to other people. You know, the book is a lot about fathers and sons and, and, and tragic and toxic, toxic masculinity and the idea of, you know, the idea of who we are, you know, are, are, are you who you want to be or who you are, are you who you're meant to be? And how much of that is in your control? I'm fascinated with those ideas. And so, yeah, I, I, like I can tell the difference between my first book and this book. Uh, my Darkest Prayer is very plot heavy. It's a mystery, first of all, so it's going to be more inherently plot heavy. But it's it's not so much a people story as this homage to the mystery genre. Whereas Blacktop Wasteland is really it's it's a character study hidden in a heist novel in a way. Yeah. You know, and um, I love writing stuff like that and i love viewing stuff like that i love movies that are driven like that you know and, and movies that have that um structure but, but they're using that structure they're stretching it to talk about different things you know and, and exactly. you know the scene you know it, it's funny because like we were talking earlier i think uh you know he did another joaquin did another movie years later um you were not you were never really here which does the same thing uh it's taking traditional hard-boiled um you know uh not movie but it's oh, it's so <laughs> it's so deconstructed as to almost not be there it's very sparse <laughs> and uh i'm not gonna i've had deep this me and, me, me and some friends have discussed this novel at length on social media and and in, 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 in conversations i don't dislike the movie i want to make clear with that but i saw what they were going for and i don't know if they achieved it and i know a lot of people feel differently. A lot of you're people breaking feel my heart. You're breaking my heart. I'm gonna say you're breaking my heart right now. I'm gonna break my heart. But I, I appreciate the desire to do it. I appreciate the attempt. I don't know if it's as successful as they hoped, but I definitely appreciate the attempt. And I think it's it's one of those films that's held together by Joaquin's performance. I mean, he, you know, he's holding that movie. He's doing the heavy lifting in that movie. Well, if in inherent vice, he's got a lot of help. You know, I think Josh Brolin, a lot of people don't talk about him enough Josh in Harry Vice, playing again, that pastiche of that, LA, you know, he's, he's, he's Joe Friday, you know, he's Joe Friday on acid, you know, yeah. and, and drinking gasoline, so. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I'm glad you do that, that you mentioned you were never really here, uh, as well as, uh, along with in Harry Vice, because I think, I think they are both two films that we're talking about plot stories versus character stories, plot mm -hmm. stories versus people stories. And I think both Inherent Vice and You Were Never Really Here, the films are just, they're the only crime slash genre slash mystery films that I can think of in re recent memory that do have the audacity to go 100% people story. Like plot mm -hmm. just does, it's just an excuse to get the people together. Mm -hmm. And all the machinations, all the fang, the souring of the American fate, it's all secondary to these people and how much mm -hmm. they miss people of their own and what drives mm -hmm. them to do what that what that missing of people drives these characters to do and in the case of mm -hmm. knock it drives him 
towards goodness, as in the case of today's scene, risking it all, diving into the dry midnight black deep into the pool to put one family back together. Mm-hmm. And on that note, we're going to watch this scene and we're going to talk about it. So here's Doc. Midnight, pitch dark, can't remember whether they drained the pool or not, but hey, what the fuck's it matter? He bounced once, twice, and then off the end of the board in a blind cannonball down into old karma with Adrian Prussia, who had not only shot at him once, but threatened him with a Carl Yastrzemski special baseball bat. All this, leaving Doc to wonder, where's the partner to watch my back? All right, man. Right. Psychedelic. Done. So, you're here about... Good question. Uh... Wait a minute. This is bullshit. I remember you. You're that kid from Fritz's shop out in Santa Monica, right? So what you up to these days? Skip tracing? Where'd you go into the priesthood? P.I. They gave you a license? So who sent you here? Hmm. Who are you working for today? Uh, all on a spec, all on my own time. Wrong answer. How much of your own time do you think you got left, kid? <laughs> I was just about to ask. Uh, Howdy, Puck? Do I know you? I don't think I do. Oh, you must uh, remind me of someone I ran to someplace. My mistake? I have a busy day ahead. And I know nothing. What are you doing here? Uh, just uh, talking to Adrian. Mm. It's these uh, various cases I'm working on, and. Uh, Glenn Jarlock and uh, Vincent Indelicato. through a door. PCP opens that door, shows you through it, slams the door behind you, and locks it. All right, so I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent, and then you're going to shut me up and tell me what you think. <laughs> All right. So I'm sure I can tell that you're shocked. Travis, you're going to go on a tangent? My God. 
you know, we talk, we talked that we, we were talking about this as being a people movie more than a plot movie or an idea movie. And I think that that is so showcased actually here. Um, when it's so much about these characters, we see so clearly the bravery of Doc being willing to walk into the rat's nest of Adrian Precious' office, knowing the danger that Adrian is going to pose to him and the likelihood of Adrian being partnered with Puck Beaverton. He's not just throwing himself in harm's way. Doc is throwing himself at harm itself. This known <laughs> LAPD, LAPD hitman uh, because he knows something has gone bad on his watch. Something mm-hmm. he's, he's left something on duty undone. So again, mm-hmm. buckle up because I'm. I got. I have something to say. Uh, you know, so much of uh, last week's, so much of last week's conversation on the show with Rolling Stones, David Fear, was about the complicity of these characters, the characters that we consider to be the good guys in this movie, mm-hmm. and how that mirrors the complicity, the complicity and the weakness of the counterculture movement of the mm-hmm. 1960s, as it's portrayed in in the book. Uh, you know, with Pinchon, there's there's such anger at the counterculture, at not being able to see the seeds of their undoing and how they were planted mm-hmm. long, 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 long before the events of 1963 or 1968, and that the counterculture missed those mm-hmm. because their, their eyes were averted. They, they missed the nefarious real-world fang forces undoing American life. And in the film, as we talked about, that's been concretized as Doc here, his eyes being squarely fixed on Shasta for so much of the movie, mm-hmm. that he missed his duty the whole time. That His duty the whole time was to save Shasta. And, or to excuse me to save Coy and his family, <laughs> and so I do love the nobility, albeit slightly delayed. That very p. This is like I think one of the reasons this scene can be so jarring is because of, this film has been this kind of hazy, lazy jaunt into people, into people territory, the people stuff, mm-hmm. and then all of all out of nowhere, it becomes a pure pi story where our lead character suddenly shows his willingness to make a blind cannonball into old karma as the narrator mm-hmm. sort of leash says and face mm-hmm. down Adrian Prussia. And I, 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 again, you know, I always try to ID why this movie pushes people away. I try to find what the things are and there's a lot, I think there are a lot of them. I don't think this is the most accessible film that's ever been made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that one of them is this delayed reaction of finally, like it's this film has waited almost two and a half hours before finally mm-hmm. going. You know what? Let's give him some detective shit. Let's give him some noir, mm-hmm. some violent noir shit. Let's give him some weird uh, masculinity stuff. But also, what I think it does here that I think is so amazing is you know we're talking about complicity, something that's come up mm-hmm. uh, more than once on this show, is that even someone as good-hearted as Doc, and he is, is complicit. Mm-hmm. He's sleeping with a mm-hmm. deputy DA at the Department of Justice. Strike one. You know, he's more or less partnered mm-hmm. with Bigfoot, an even more complicit man who is part mm-hmm. of the LAPD itself. Who ref- mm-hmm. And Bigfoot, how, you know, he refuses to break from the LAPD when they murder his own partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and b- both of those men keep using the firmaments of the establishment that has broken both of their lives, the Fang with mm-hmm. Doc and the LAPD with Bigfoot, using those things, albeit for a noble cause to save Koi, uh, and the other for a selfish one to avenge Bigfoot's partner. There's just so much complicity with the forces of darkness, and uh, and, and this is going somewhere, I promise. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, hell, the closest thing to the to a big bad that this film has is Crocker Fenway later on, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and we find out that he paid Doc his first 
PI gig. He hired him to find his daughter. That was Doc's first detective gig, meaning that Doc's entire career as a do-gooder investigator was funded by the Golden Fang itself. And that is so insidious mm -hmm. and that is so horrifying and so 2020 feeling to me. Uh, you know, and before mm -hmm. we learned he was a skip, a skip tracer working in the same circles as this loan shark, Adrian Prussia. All of which is why that line, Doc making a blind cannonball into old karma carries, that kicks off this scene, it carries such weight to me because it's as if, it's as if this crucible that Doc must face with against Adrian and against, against uh, Puck, Mm -hmm. It's almost like this is his karmic penance for having fucked so much with this evil shit and dallied with this evil shit. And whether he meant to or not, just the way he maybe didn't realize how conservative he was in his viewpoints about women, specifically the person he viewed mm -hmm. as his woman, which in and of mm -hmm. itself is a very conservative viewpoint. It's almost like he's he is diving into karma itself and having to pay up for his complicity and the stuff that he missed. It's... It, it, he has to suffer to be purified, which mm -hmm. I think kind of meshes. There's a, a previous guest came on, Matt Zoller Seitz. His reading of this entire film is that it is a pot-fogged reinterpretation of the New Testament with Doc as Jesus. And uh, <laughs> somewhat like that. There's a lot of Christian. There's a lot of Christian iconography that you could uh, put on that scene uh, on the whole film. There's a lot of almost Greek or Roman mythological. Yeah. Uh, iconography that you could put on it. You know, he's descending in the 80s. You know, if you look at it, um, maybe Shasta is sort of his uh, Persephone, uh, but she's yeah. a Persephone that doesn't need his help to escape. And so he's playing the role of, you know, maybe even like Dante going into the Inferno. And I, I actually see it as a, as a really uh, uh, hazy, technicolor, stoner-infused uh, uh, Dante's Inferno. That he's going deeper wow. and deeper into these circles until until here because you know you know it, it's it, he's you know going down to save uh, you know his love from this hell that she's willingly put herself in just like people who sin who you know people who sin willingly send themselves into hell deeper and deeper and so Doc is sort of playing that Dante role where he's got to keep going deeper and deeper and every level is more bizarre and darker until we reach Adrian Prussia, who's the devil, and Puck, who's, you know, his right-hand man, Beelzebub. And this is the moment that he has to, you know, fight the, the ultimate, as you say, evil, but then you find out, no, there's a level even deeper than that, yeah. you know? Is, is the golden fang and 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 so it's very much a a, a classic hero's journey tropish scene um and then i think that i think that's uh one of the things that i took from it like i said the whole movie plays like a a very deep personal quasi theological journey for doc you know it's the death of the counterculture it's the end of you know peace love and happiness and sunshine and rainbows and country joe and it's the death of a certain type of LA as it, you know, even when you see Marv Wolfman in the insane asylum, it's, it's definitely has to me parallels to in, in Dante's Inferno. Um, but this scene specifically outside of all those literary illusions, it is the scene that is most closely allied with the actual traditional PI novel or movie. Yeah. Cause every PI I, I've read a lot of private eye stuff. Mike Hammer, you know, uh, you know Philip Marlowe, uh, 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 Lou Archer, 
Dash, uh, you know, uh, Sam Spade, Easy Rollins, uh, uh, Elvis Cole. Every detective in every PI movie or novel has that moment where you're pretty sure they're gonna make it, but you're not sure. They have that moment where they're fighting, they're literally fighting for their lives and all their wisecracks and all their quips can't help them now. And now they have to be quote unquote men. They have to stand tall. And you know, it's a trope because it works. It's a trope because by this point in the movie, you're invested with Doc, you like him. Some people may even love him and you don't want him to go down those steps. You know, that whole scene, it goes from, again, Technicolor, Dayglow, Bubblegum, LA of the 70s and, and early 80s to freaking David Fincher 7. You know, it's, it's, it's so dark, the color palette shifts, the tone shifts. And when he sits there and Puck comes out, you know, and the guy who plays Puck, Keith Jardines, former MMA fighter, big intimidating guy. The Dean of Me. Yeah, the Dean of Me, you know, uh, physically present in that scene. It, it creates a double cachet because if you're like me, you're a fan of MMA, you know, wow, that's Keith Jardine. That's a dude that in real life can go. That's a dude in real life has knocked people the fuck out. If you're not a fan, you just see him come in the room. You see the tattoo. You see the physical, the physicality that he brings upon the scene. And then you look over to Adrian Prussian. Like I said, he's the devil. He's he's not as physically intimidating, but he's he exudes, and the actor who plays him exudes this just sludge-like, oily, greasy, nasty, cow shit evil that you feel like, because <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna get, I can't, I'm not gonna be able to get it off. It's like having cow shit stuck to my shoe. And so, <laughs> and you see Doc willing to go in there. And, and like you said, it's no longer just about Shasta, it's about Koi, it's about his wife, it's about that ugly goddamn baby. Um, it's just, <laughs> um, you, you oh, feel boy. for him, you feel for him. And you know, the scene, right after that, but the scene after he smokes a joint with the PCP on and everything. And um, you fear for, for Doc, man, that's, that later on that scene, you know, he's hanging from the pipe and Puck grabs him and kisses him. And, you know, there's there's the insinuation that there's gonna be some sexual violence, you know, and, and you fear for him. Um, and the way he escapes and the way he's able, again, he PTA takes that scene and he drops you into traditional tropish PI land. Mm. And it feels almost too much because we've been, a, you know, there's a, there's a term in, in sci-fi writing, fantasy writing, of world building. And he's built this world so far. Yeah, people have died, there's been violence and stuff, but it's still through the haze or through the, 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 the specs of this off kilter LA. But no, now we're in real LA. Now we're in dark LA. Now we're in, like I said, we're in eight millimeter territory. We're in, uh, you know, even though it's New York, but we're in Serpico territory. Yeah. We're in, you know, to live and die in LA territory. We're here with, you know, is, is Doc gonna be like Chance in LA to live and die in LA? And it's, it makes you terrified for him. And when he is able to overcome the, these obstacles and, and, and free himself with no help from Bigfoot, may I say, um, <laughs> you feel you feel like he's been baptized to, to re, 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 uh, reiterate the Christian iconography. He's been baptized, and he's a creature made new, and he's different, you know. And and just to 
go off on a little bit of tangent. Not much after that, there's a different scene where, you know, he's he's talking to the the real evil, the real devil. And it's like, what if, you know, and again, very Dante Inferno-ish because it's like, what do you want? We can give you anything, money. What do you want, power, influence? And he's like, no, I just want you to put this man's family back together. And it's again, taking the trope of the private detective, you know, poor private detectives. If you watch a private detective movie, I don't know how any of them ever make any money because they never get paid. <laughs> they never make any goddamn money. <laughs> You never make any money. Nobody ever pays the bill. Nobody ever brings the invoice in and sign the check. But, um, you know, Doc doesn't get paid. He gets paid, no. metaphorically speaking. His soul yeah. is compensated. That's such a fucking great way of putting it. Uh, because, again, I, you know, I, I don't disagree with you. I think that's such a great way of looking at it, that this film in a weird way is like, it is like a, you know, this isn't a, 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 a stoner take on the long goodbye or something like that. This is almost like the uh, Dante's Inferno and Doc descending deeper and deeper into a confrontation with himself and the things about himself that have brought him here. Like, why is he here? And and I and I also think that works a little with what I with what I was saying earlier too, which is he has to kind of to use a very very Doc like phrase. He's got to confront his own karma, and mm-hmm. he has to like face down people like Adrian Prussia because these are the sharks that he used to be swimming with. This is the, the mm-hmm. complicity that he has had with his, you know, I think Doc Sin is one of kind of, is, has been one of complicity and maybe that he's maybe a little bit more conservative than, than he knows or is willing to admit that there, there mm-hmm. are maybe more similarities between him and Bigfoot than the fact that they both have a, a missing partner in their life. And that he, it's, well, it's just funny because Shasta, this is him reckoning with that and having to go through the fire and get out of that. Yeah, it's funny because it's like, you know, um, there's a, a scene early in the movie and somebody makes reference to the Mansons. And, uh, you know, this movie, it doesn't actually ever tell you exactly, but it must be, it, I think it takes place theoretically after that. And oh, yeah, this is, say that was the end. They, this like, is the roughly spring the, of 1970. Yeah, so people say a lot of times that the Manson murders was the end of the, of the hippie generation, end of the counterculture. But I don't know if you can, I don't think the counterculture or, or movements or anything can be so definitively ended. You know, you can't just turn, it's not a faucet, you can't just turn it off. And so Doc and his friend, uh, you know, and it's Shasta and all the characters that we meet are people that are living in the, in the last gasp, the final wisp of that counterculture. And oh, it's weird because I wonder, you know, to be meta a little bit. I wonder if 10, 20 years down the road, is Doc living in the suburbs? Is he a guy who who gave in? And some people say, oh, you, you sold out. You know, is that selling out or is that, you know, moving on? And I think that's the thing about this movie when you're talking specifically about the references of the counterculture and how, how it is a sharp critique of that is, you know, was there an idealism that was unrealistic and not pragmatic, not pessimistic, but just unrealistic. And because of that unrealistic, that refusal to be realistic and look at the full width and pantheon of what was going on, the promise of that generation was lost. But specifically to the scene, to use another Christian, I'm from the South, so a Southern Gothic uh, uh, tone, um, you know, Doc has to pay for his sins. He has to pay for his sins and, and, and not just his sins of his, his, his tame, tame, tame uh, chauvinism, but also of, you know, Doc willingly, like you said, works with Bigfoot, even though Bigfoot is probably 
a horrible, horrible person. And he lives on the margins of working with people who are actively destroying people that he knows and cares about, you know? And so this is him facing that final, you know, reckoning, as you said, and it works. It works really well because this is the scene where it's like, I was already invested with him as a character, but I'm fully invested in him surviving. I want him to survive. I want him to come away from this made new. And uh, I think PTA does a great job of, of doing that. But then we go right back into the world of, um, the whimsical, I guess, world of Inherent Vice. But if you notice, after that scene, whatever they were doing the cinematography is different. Everything's duller. Nothing has the same shine as it did previously. Things get a little hazy. Things get a little hazy. The color palette is real mute, you know, in a different way. And it it almost has a grayish tone to it. And I think that's, I would love to ask the cinematographer, was that intentional? Because I think it is. I think that is the end of the, 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 like I said, the bright technicolor world that Doc was living in, the, you know, the, the surfer stoner, beach bum vibe and now it's like wow this is the real world and i have to make real decisions oh god damn sean you're killing me you know why because i told you i told you at the top of this thing there's always this point where a guest will say something i've seen this movie 500 goddamn times someone will say something that has never occurred to me that i've somehow not noticed and you are so right though about that but that there is a I, i i think of the scene that i'm thinking of that comes shortly after this is after uh adrian and puck are dead and um uh bigfoot has gotten uh doc's car out of hawk and the very next morning doc is just sitting in like his breakfast yes. with stacks of yes. golden fang smack and yet it is so washed this it is just so washed out and barren and cold and lifeless yes. and then we and we see that again when he's outside of that macy's north hollywood uh, doing the handoff with the Golden Fang family, we mm-hmm. see it again when um, even in that 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 uh, when he meets with Crocker Fenway, when everything's just very kind of wood paneled and, yes. and single colored, you know, the, there's like one final blast of light when he gets when he gets coy out of um, mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. Topanga house, and then after that, mm-hmm. it just kind of reverts back to kind of very cold hues. And you're so mm-hmm. right; it's it's almost like there's been a waking up, a waking mm-hmm. up from from what you know to use a very a phrase from the film itself that uh, mickey wolfman uses in Chris, at the chris kyla known institute he's like they're helping me wake up from my hippie dream yeah and it's like that's, yeah. that's in a way that doc has had been forced to reckon with a reality that his hippie idealism simply cannot support and mm-hmm. that even goes back to you know when you ask you say hey you know does that doesn't this mean that it's possible that in like 15 or 20 years uh, that Doc is living in the suburbs. Think about how does this movie kick off after Shasta leaves? We see a commercial for Mickey Wolfman's Channel View Estates mm-hmm. uh, that is designed to lure hippies into suburb living mm-hmm. with a two-car right. garage and a breakfast nook and a view of uh, you know the the mm-hmm. for the, fl- the the Mingus flood control channel that can only be described as out of sight. Yeah, Literally, with with Bigfoot, the the avid, and everything. with yeah. Bigfoot, the face, the face of the LAPD, not exactly the most people friendly organization in the whole <laughs> wide world, luring Pied Piper style, dressed up yeah. as a hippie, dressed up in the accoutrements of this counterculture and selling mm. it back to them and 
Pied Pipering them out uh, away from the beach and into the yeah. suburbs. Like it's already started. And I think that that's kind of one of the levels at which this film works as a horror movie is you see how that's already beginning. Oh yeah. And the, the corruption of that. And um, you know, and depending on what your point of view is, it's either a sad ending or a happy ending or a realistic ending. You know, it's, it's, and I think it's weird because I think for Doc as a character, if you asked him at the beginning of the movie, he'd be like, no way, man, I never sell out like that. I'll never do that. But by the end, it's like, well, maybe I wouldn't mind having a garage, you know? And I don't <laughs> he has an awful hard a, time parking in think, his on the beach. Yeah, I don't think that's an indictment of him as a character. I think that's a part of, I think that's part of life to a certain extent. Like, I, I, for instance, I'm a 90s kid. I was a 90s kid. I, I went to house. I graduated high school in 93. And, I, I, you know, there was a certain moment in the 90s, especially on the East Coast, where there was this, I'm going far afield, but I got a point, so just stick with me. I was, there was this moment in the 90s where there was this movement on the East Coast of the neo-soul movement. So you had yeah. musicians like D'Angelo and uh, 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 Bahamadia from Philly. The Roots is a part of that a little bit, but you also had, uh, you know, just this movement of this neo return to uh, urban, or not even urban, just black music and the power and depth of the emotionality of it. And, uh, you know, D'Angelo, like I said, was at the front of that, but Maxwell's a part of that, so on and so forth. And from that also popped up these spoken word venues, you know, on the East Coast where people would go and do, you know, spoken word poetry, you know, like I am in my car walking down the street. And um, I remember going to those. I used to go to those and I used to write bad poetry and and uh, Erica Badu and Jill Scott and, you know, these venues would have live musicians and it'd be people they would back you up doing the music and all the girls had uh you know all the girls had uh had their hair wrapped up and had chopsticks and and and, and seashells in it and all the dudes were wearing like retro clothes and and, and knit caps and, and and dark collars and and, and uh, you know uh, turtlenecks and stuff and i remember going to that and thinking wow this is great man i i, I want to do this for i want to be a part of this movement forever i don't ever want to leave this and you know life happens and and you start to see that this movement is like every other movement that there are sharks and snakes and people that get hurt and people that take advantage of people and about three or four years later it was over it was over you know cash money came on the scene it was bling bling and it was you know and i'm not putting that down either but that's that's the natural progression of life that's entropy that's changes is what's necessary and so uh, I have a very rose-colored nostalgia view of that time period, and I listen to the music on Spotify, and and I you know I watch the video specials on VH1 or what have you. But at the same time, I am acutely aware that that time wasn't perfect, nor is any other time in history been perfect. And I think Doc, even though I don't know what age he's supposed to be in the movie, I think Doc finally realizes, hey. The 60s as I experienced them weren't perfect. Doesn't mean you regret the time you spent in that culture or in that movement or in that, uh, you know, that milieu, but you're also human and adult enough to realize, hey, that was a moment in time. And it's life, life is just moments in time. And I think Doc finds that out. I don't find that to be a sad ending. I, I have friends who I've talked about the movie with before this podcast, they're like, man, that bummed me out if I think Doc's in suburbs. You know, he's like a 60-year-old dude. I said, no, man, that's Doc in the suburbs in 20 years. Doc's the cool dude that has like a yard party, man, that still has friends over. He still smokes weed. He just, like, 
is able to settle down and actually build a life. He doesn't burn out. He doesn't drop out. You know, and that's my that's my Pollyanna optimistic interpretation. <laughs> well, I mean, so much of that is what in the even the title and the term means inherent vice. You know, is that that uh, glass shatter shatters, mm-hmm. eggs eggs break, chocolate melts, and things change. Time yeah. changes everything. And yeah. I mean, hell, uh, you know, this is a real deep dive bit of nerdetry here, but hell, uh, there's a moment where Doc via Sword of Liege in the scene is recalling how uh, Adrian Prussia tried to crack his head open with a, um, with a Carl Yastrzemski special baseball bat. And mm-hmm. even that, I'm going to throw this because this is such a nerdy thing. Carl Yastrzemski played for the Boston Red Sox uh, mm-hmm. from 61 to 83, and his, his career peak was 1967 to 1970 the same mm-hmm. years that doc's movement peaked mm-hmm. and then ended right with, like that's the level of layering and that's the kind of hard-hitting info you're going to get on increment vice everyone uh but even the choice <laughs> even the choice of baseball that also carly Strimsky is from philly uh like uh like finchon or not philly but this mm-hmm. is long island um, like mm-hmm. Trump. But uh, even the choice of baseball bat is meant to be reflective of the fact that good things end, things move on, mm-hmm. things change, things have to change. And that is so mm-hmm. much of what this film is. And so much of what this film is, is Doc having to finally reckon with that, that Shasta changes, that, that his view, mm-hmm. even his view of Shasta has to change. That, and that yet, and yet, and yet, there is a kind of reconciliation, I think, with mm-hmm. his idealism, with his strange dockish kind of conservatism in that what 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 is his ultimate goal become in this film? It's to put back the typical American family. It's to reunite mm-hmm. the typical American family. And it, I almost feel like in that act, what he is sacrificing or risking sacrificing his entire life for right now is to kind of make a weirdly conservative act, but to recognize that that is okay, that that is actually still worth something, that even though that is kind of beyond his idealism of, you know, be with whoever you want to be. You can have a girlfriend like Penny and have another girlfriend in form of your ex-old like Shasta, that ultimately it's like, no, it's about, I'm just going to bring this family back together. And there's something kind of, kind of conservative about that in, in, in not in the political sense of the term uh but but also right. that doc is able to look at that and go that's worthwhile that is okay it's okay if i just put this family together in torrance and they live in the suburbs that's worth something that still counts for something good it's the nobility that yeah. we seek it's the nobility that we seek it's the you know it's the the quote-unquote white knightism of sacrifice and you know it, it goes back now that's where i think it ties back into traditional noir you know, goes back to the uh, the great uh, Raymond Chandler quote about what's the PI. You know, he's a man who walks the mean streets, neither neither tarnished nor afraid. You know, um, and you know he wouldn't spoil a virgin, but he he'll bed a, a queen. You know, and uh, I think that's as close as it gets to that traditional trope. But again, tropes are tropes because of reason; they work. We can deconstruct them. You know, tropes are like, like you said earlier, tropes are like a car that you break down for parts and then you rebuild something new and different. Not necessarily better, but just different out of those parts. And again, the end of the movie leads heavily into the traditional PI wrapping up the mystery trope, you know, except, except in most PI novels or movies, they don't leave town. 
Sam Spade stays in New York. You know, uh, Lou Archer stays in California. Philip Marlowe stays in Southern California at the end of every book because ultimately the traditional PI is stagnant. You know, that, that story is, is static. It, it's a lot of stuff happens, but the protagonist is static because the yeah. protagonist can't change, especially if it's a series, but the protagonist can't change. Inherent Vice, you know, flips that on his head. Doc is profoundly changed. It's everything else around him that is slowly changing. And he's profoundly changed by the end of the movie. So he does leave. He does drive off metaphorically into the sunset, but I, you know, into a, a unknown and new world. And I, I find that incredible. I'm fascinated with LA. I've never been to LA, but I'm fascinated with LA. I'm fascinated with the idea of LA. You know, like it, it, there's a movie called Drive, which I based on John Salas' book. And Ryan Gosling's phenomenal in that movie. And no matter how violent, it is violent as shit. No matter how violent that movie is, LA always looks beautiful. Yeah. I, I, it always looks like this strange, beautiful, you know, over the rainbow by way of, you know, uh, La Cienega fantasy world, you know? And, and I love that idea. There's something special. Every part of the country has special things, but I write about the rural South and I, there's beauty there. There's a part of, there's, there's something in LA that's beautiful and magical, but also it's like this really ripe peach sometimes that you bite into it and it's rotten and full of worms. And I find that just incredibly intriguing, incredibly fascinating. And movies like Inherent Vice or Drive or uh, Wonderland or uh, Boogie Nights or even the old movies, you know, uh, even Chinatown, those movies take LA and hold it up to the mirror and force it to look at itself for all its faults and foibles and all the beauty and the grotesqueness inherent therein, you know? And and uh, a friend of mine went to LA once um, and she hung out with some folks. Um, she won a contest to go to the set of a TV show. And after the contest was over, she went out with some people and she told me later, she's like, no, for a minute, she has a business back here on the East and everything. But she said for a minute, I could see myself just saying, fuck it, I'm gonna stay here. And I think that's different in LA than it is anywhere else in the world. Like you can go to New York and feel that way, but it's cold in the winter and who wants yeah. to spend winters in New York if you don't have to. But LA is always beautiful. Even when the smog is coming over the hills, there's something, the warmth, the sun on your skin, the way the, the street feels under your feet, there's something adult magical there. There's a, a magical realism that exists there. Yeah, people go out there to live their dreams, be actors and actresses, but people go out there to live their dreams of being musicians. But people go out there to live their dream to live on a beach and never see another snowflake. And I think that a film like Inherent Vice, it draws you into that world in a way that is at both times challenging and comforting. You know, there's a scene early on where he goes to um, uh, the strip mall and just driving out to the strip mall and the way the signs look in the distance and the way the sky yeah. looks and the, and the hills you see in the distance. And it's like, you know, it's like, man, you know, this is a place where dreams and nightmares can come true. You know, I'm fascinated with it. I'm trying to work on something that's in LA in the future. So I'm fascinated with that though, I am. Probably to an uh, unhealthy degree. <laughs> I mean, it can't be any more unhealthy than, the, than those of us who, who pay so much of our bank accounts and our souls to stay out here day in and day out through earthquakes and wildfires and yeah. i mean it's beautiful but it's um it's a costly beauty 
to come. So yeah. but, no, I get what you mean. You yeah. know, David Lynch talks about that when he first came out to L.A. He said he couldn't believe the first time he saw the sunrise and the way the sun hit the surfaces of everything in the city. He said it just looked, even the sunlight felt different. The sunlight looks different. It heats you differently. Yeah. There's just something about yeah. the way the light touches things here. There's a different kind of glow that mm-hmm. just makes you feel better when it touches you. There's something mm-hmm. about that. And yes, I, as someone who, someone who lives here, I can attest uh, for as much as I get mad at this goddamn city, as much yeah. as I'm screaming at the traffic and punching my steering wheel, as much as I'm <laughs> looking when I'm paying rent at the, at the beginning of every <laughs> month. Uh, there's there's something about it that just makes it. You, you take a drive out to like Zuma or something, or you, I don't know, you 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 drive, you you twist and turn up Mulholland, and you look at, you're able to look over at the valley, or hell, you just you just drive around like a couple weekends ago, just on a whim because I'm I'm writing something about double indemnity. I drove to the double indemnity house in the Hollywood Hills just mm-hmm. to be able to stand at that house. There's something. There's just there's is cheesy as it might sound there's a magic that's just it's, it's nowhere else but here there's a book um uh, uh robert craze who writes the elvis cole joe pike series there's a book called la Requiem. and in the beginning of that book he has about a page and a page and a half of just talking about la talking about driving down the freeway up into the hills driving through smog driving through the fort the smoke from the forest fires it's beautiful it's poetry you know it's it's a violent strange almost erotic but at the same time chase poetry and it's different like like i've been i've been to vegas so i've been as far west as nevada vegas is vegas is 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 bacchus and and la is zeus and what i mean is vegas is just it's just crazy balls to wall it's energy it's let's make bad decisions with good liquor in in our glass where um (laughs) <laughs> LA is is the it's it's the king of, of the cities. It's the it's the god, it's the head god. It's you know, everything is here if you want it in California. You can go far enough to the north, you can go hiking and go get on the Pacific Coast Trail and hiking in, in Canada. You go far enough to the south, you can immerse yourself in Southern California uh, um, uh, culture. You know, you go in the middle of the city, in the middle of the state, you're in LA and you can be in the middle of the, the, the you know, your fingers on the pulse of of entertainment for the world. And like you said, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a tragic beauty. And I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I really, I love films about LA, I love movies, I love books, you know, it just, it just fascinates me. I think some of that also has to be being a back a East Coast kid. Um, you, you're always fascinated about something outside of your normal sphere of influence. I have people say that to me about South. It's like, oh, I love going to Savannah. I love going to Charleston. And it's like, I don't see it because I live here all the time. So I write about it, but sometimes I can lose it. And I think that's the same thing for me with LA. And like I said, you know, bring back down to inherent vice. The first scene after Shasta leaves, when he gets up the morning, the next morning, he, he's starting the case. Like I said, when he drives out on the street, man, even his car, just there's just this, this sense of wonderment in there. And uh, it's like I said, it, it, it enraptures me all the time. Now I just want to have a podcast about LA with you. We we <laughs> selling me on something here. I will say really dude, quick. I can talk I, about that for hours, dude. Don't even get started. It's, it's, I will. <laughs> I will say. I I know. I know from having spoken with you. I know, and I'm not going to say anything. We'll keep spoilers to a minimum here. I know what the LA-based book is that you're <laughs> thinking about, and yeah. I'm just saying you. For me, 
for me. Do me a kindness. It's been a tough year, Sean. Write that goddamn book, please. Please write that book. I know what that is. I'm asking. It's been a rough year. Please give me that book. Write that book. I'm good for your old pal Travis. <laughs> All right. It's definitely one I'm gonna try to work on, man. I, I definitely I, I I feel I need the need to write something about it. Like even if it's just an essay. Because uh, you know, even growing up as a kid, man, um, you watch TV shows and, and you watch the Rockford Files and you watch stuff about California and it's just, you know, it's just something different there. Just out to you. And I think, you know, and I'll tell you this, you know, uh Again, as a kid from the South, um, I noticed this when I went out to Nevada. I've been to Albuquerque. You know, there's, there's you know, social ills all over the place. You know, I have to go into detail about what they are, but there's social ills everywhere. It's racism, there's sexism everywhere. But this, again, speaking as a kid from the South, when you go out West, there's just this moment where you can breathe easier for a second, depending on where you are, yeah. you know, and it's different. There's a different different tone. It's a different way people look at you. And it's a different way people treat you. And I mean, yeah, I know I'm not talking about South Central LA. I'm not talking about like, you know, the rough parts of town. But in the tourist traps for a minute, you don't feel like people are watching you the same way. And it's such a relief. And it's, it, I think that's one of the things that draws me to it as well. It's just different. You know, it's beautiful to go somewhere where there are no Confederate statues. I'll just leave it at that. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As, as again, we talked about, you know, as someone who comes from the Ozarks, uh, it's, it's an adjustment. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sizable <laughs> cultural adjustment. It's a very pleasant, I mean, I mean, Jesus Christ, every, every place has its, as you said, it's got its stockpile of social ills and it's not exactly mm -hmm. like LA is as, is as much a bastion of progression as we like to think it is. <laughs> right, um, right, exactly, I'm, I'm, exactly. I'm looking at you, Bigfoot in the LAPD. Yeah, uh, yeah. we are not as as progressive as we as we want to tell ourselves we are. But yeah, there I know exactly what you mean. And there is there is that feeling in a, in a city like this. You get lost in the light, and people let you get lost in the light. And there's yeah, oh yeah. Again, there's something magical about that. There's something magical about that. But then you like you know to bring it back to the scene we were talking about. There are parts. Of, like, like there's the dark, gritty side of LA. There's the yeah. underbelly, so to speak. And I think that, you know, and, and I think that's represented by Adrian Prussia, you know, uh, a, a guy with a relatively silly name or like Puck <laughs> Beaverton. Silly names. When, it, when is a pinch on name not silly? <laughs> <laughs> but deadly, deadly characters to in, in, in fall into. And again, that's that, you know, that's that rotten. Uh, worm infested core to the you know to the to the beautiful you know Southern California orange you know there's a great cover uh, the cover of um, of No Doubt's Tragic Kingdom uh, is an orange that looks rotten giant and orange. I think that's definitely you know that yeah <laughs> that's definitely a metaphor for for LA in a certain point so when you're in that scene it's a cool glass of water to the face of like hey you watching this movie yeah those hills are beautiful and those neon signs at night are lovely but guess what there's guys like Pup beaverton and adrian prussia that will kill you chop you up and take you out to the ocean and drop you in the middle of the pacific and so i think that's again paul thomas anderson juggling a lot of balls so to speak in the air and one of them is yeah for all that beauty and all that fancy footloose uh freedom there's this, and you have to be aware of this too. And I think for too long, Doc as a character has kind of not 
he's he's touched his toe to the evil, but he hasn't dived into the pool. And this scene forces him to dive into the pool. You are so know, right. And in a way I, that I, you're just you hit it. Yeah, I mean that's it's it's and it's it's, it's like I was saying earlier. Just, there's a cost that has to be paid. There's mm-hmm. a debt. There's a debt that has to be paid. I don't know if it's just because like look, if you're gonna live the life out here in California, you finally have to go mm-hmm. through this level of hell to be able to stay. I, I, I would argue that it is, it is a bit more karmic. It is a bit more like, look, if you're going to keep swimming with these sharks, literal sharks, I mean, Adrian Prussia is a lone shark, but if you're going to mm-hmm. play with these forces, even if you don't do it anymore, but if you're going to play with these forces or if you're going to keep dallying with the LAPD and the Department of Justice, if you're going to, if you're going to be a part of this, you know, it's, 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 it's a, what does, um, what's Tommy Lee Jones say at the beginning of another uh, literary adaptation, No Country for Old Men, uh, where mm-hmm. you have to be willing to put your soul at hazard and say, all right, I'll be a part of this world. Mm-hmm. And I think that Doc yeah. finds finds a reckoning like that here. Where he's like, if, if you're going to be part of a true LA crime story, if you're really going to put yourself out there and you're going to chase all these strands and ultimately mm-hmm. you may, might've been doing it just because you were trying to rescue a woman that you wanted to have to rescue, even though she didn't mm-hmm. need it. If you're going to play with that fire, if you're going to play with that karma, you're going to have to pay the cost. And I think that's exactly what this scene is about is it's doc finally having to reckon with the bill. And I think also it shows that part of his right before the scene, he and Bigfoot are doing traditional detective stuff. And they're talking about the gold fillings or the, and then he's like, you know, the gold fillings aren't always gold. They got copper mixed in. That is a glimpse. This scene really pulls back the curtain that part of doc's persona is an affectation. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's not nearly as dumb as he pretends. He's not nearly ever as high as he he, he puts forth. And he's, he's, I hate to use the word, but it's the only one that comes to mind. He's way tougher than you think. You know, he's made of more sterner stuff than people give him credit for. You know, and, and that scene with, with Puck and, and Adrian, it, it shows that. Yeah, for all his peace, love, and, you know, good vibes, and, you know, man, let's all get baked, there's there's a human being in there that can push himself to do pretty nasty things. And, you know, when you crack a dude upside the head, um, full disclosure, I've been in a few bar fights, and <laughs> when you crack somebody upside the head with a toilet top or a pool stick or a baseball bat, there's a part of you that's trying to kill them. I, I, and, you know, there's a part of you, you know, set- your limitation run out that was in 1985 um but no 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 as someone who's been in a few fights you gotta have a little you gotta have more than a little anger in your heart to go that distance to to finish i think that shows that dark side that's again going back to the 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 christian motif that shows doc's dark side that you know for and it's i think it scares him i think it is a part of himself that he thought he didn't have yeah, and I think it's a part of himself that he doesn't like at all. You know, you talk about the scene directly after that when he's sitting in the kitchen and it's all this smack around it. And you know, we don't know from the movie that we, we get the feeling Doc hasn't done smack. Like he may have done some coke and acid and weed, but you know, maybe the smack is a little off putting. But even the way he looks, it is like you know, I killed two people. I killed two people. It's not the smack that's putting that look on his face. It's the fact that he killed two people and. Again, uh, I think that scene is, you know, is buoyed by Joaquin's performance and, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's direction where he had to touch that dark part of himself and how much of that dark part of himself is 
because of the situation he was in? How much of it is situational and how much of it is intrinsic? And we don't know, you know. And, you know, I, I don't think, we, I, I certainly don't think we did it on purpose. Nothing on the show really is all that on purpose. We just kind of stumble <laughs> about. You know, I think it's so interesting that at the top of this hour, we were both talking about the sex scene. Because mm-hmm. I think that that, for me anyway, so much of that scene is forcing Doc to reckon with a type of darkness in him that he maybe didn't want to think about or that he didn't mm-hmm. want to acknowledge was there. There's a sexual darkness and a masculine mm-hmm. darkness and a toxicity that mm-hmm. Shasta kind of had to erupt out of him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, figuratively and literally rip it out of him to get him to see it and look at it and go, look at the kind of guy you are. Look at what mm-hmm. kind of turns you on. You don't want to admit mm-hmm. it, but look at this. And it's interesting that we both, that we went there and talked about that scene because just like you said just a few minutes ago, this scene is another type of reckoning for Doc where he's kind of looking at mm-hmm. the. I don't think before this moment, maybe, you know, I think Doc is capable, even Bigfoot notes in the scene after this, you know, I've seen you at the range, Doc. I know you can handle yourself. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this is another moment where once again, Doc is having to put away the rose colored glasses and mm-hmm. recognize that he is, you know, he needed to be uh, willing and able to do this, but in order to survive. But I think it's a moment where Doc goes, holy shit, I'm capable of X. I'm capable of breaking a man's skull with a toilet lid and mm-hmm. then killing his boss because I have to. And again, mm-hmm. both scenes, it's like they speak to each other. It's a man kind of realizing what's been there all along that he was mm-hmm. not aware of and that he tried to disguise with nostalgia and hippie dippiness mm-hmm. and idealism and recognizing beneath that idealism, there's something a little darker at play and maybe a little necessary, but just it, it was something he didn't want to acknowledge that was there. And again, I think that so much of, so much of the, the, the book in terms of, of politic, generational politics in the 1960s and the counterculture and the film in terms of interpersonal relationships, it's about that very thing. It's about not acknowledging for a very long time that there is, there is a darker core beneath and needing to look mm-hmm. at that and ask, ask what your attraction is to that. And it's only finally it's in dealing with that that there's any kind of, any kind of catharsis or moving forward. And yeah. like you said, he wakes up from his hippie dream after this. The colors yeah, yeah. are a little blander. Every, yeah, everything goes to the shine. Everything's a little dark. It's funny because I'm fascinated by that idea. I, I, most, of, most of my writing deals with the identity question of who we are versus who we want to be. You know, we talked about Black Child Wasting a little bit. Bug is like that. Bug, you know, he wants to be this father. He wants to be this hardworking auto mechanic who pays his taxes and visits his mom in a nursing home but there's a part of him. He has the capacity for flexible moral uh, compartmentalization. He has the capacity for extreme violence. He has the capacity to be cool under fire and it scares him a little bit, but not enough, you know? Yeah, not enough. And, um, and, uh, and so he, he willingly delves back into that world. Um, there's a movie, uh, it's James Gandolfini's last role, um, The Drop. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 the character that uh, I'm drawing a blank on the actor now. Why am I drawing a blank on the actor? In the drop, uh, Tom Hardy, excuse me, Tom Hardy plays a character that everybody underestimates. And he portrays this persona of kind of slow, kind of dim witted, except in flashes, like Doc. There's flashes of that, that Tom Hardy's character in that movie is way smarter and way scarier than anybody anticipates. There's a scene in the drop where he's getting rid of a, a body parts. He has to throw them off the, uh, a dock 
um, no pun intended, and the cops show up. And he's cool. He's calm. He's able to maintain. And you get the inference that this isn't the first time he's had to do that. And then, of course, anybody who hasn't seen the drop, I'm not going to ruin it. But there's a moment toward the end where you realize he is not the one to be fucking with. He will eat you alive. And I think that's, to a way lesser extent, <laughs> Doc, in a, in a way. I think Bigfoot underestimates Doc. The Golden Fang underestimates Doc. Everybody underestimates Doc. Like, right after that scene, you know, he realizes that Bigfoot is setting him up because, you know, and, and getting into Bigfoot, that's a whole nother story, but Bigfoot can't accept that he is, he has this idea of himself as a forthright stalwart LAPD PD policeman, but he's also been behind the murders of two people. And so he can't deal with that. He can't accept it. So the way he deals with it is to blame it all on Doc and have Doc arrested. Can't arrest him for the murder, so he wants to get rid of it. Yeah, part of it is he doesn't want Doc to tell on him, but a part of it is a a a a, a moral a, a, uh, issue that he can't face or can't deal with. And so, um, movies and books that deal with identity are fascinating to me. Those are my bread and butter. You know, who are we? And when we're forced to confront, you know, the darkness that dwells inside of us, because we all have it. Maybe not physical violence, but we all have it inside of ourselves. And what does it take to bring it out? And what do you and do that- once it escapes? And I think that that's a question that gets asked in every single PTA movie, but just in a slightly different way. You know, you, you mentioned that you're such a huge mm-hmm. fan of Magnolia. Magnolia asks it by asking us, what can we forgive? How do we define yeah. ourselves by what can we forgive? And I think that Inherent Vice does the same thing. So it just rewords that mm-hmm. question a little bit. And it says, what, can, what can't we live without? Or specifically, mm-hmm. who can't we live without? And how does that make us who we are based on what we can't live without? And the answer to that question is 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 how these characters confront themselves and who they are because everyone in this film is asking themselves that question who what can't i live without bigfoot can't live without his dead partner vincent and delicato doc can't live without shasta hope can't live without coy everyone in this film is is asking themselves what can't i live without but the only person in the film who actually can answer that question and live with themselves is marv because for the longest part of his life he's he felt like he couldn't live without money Oh, you mean Mickey? Mickey. Mickey, I'm sorry, Mickey. Yeah, that's and, right. and, and, at one, and at some point, he finds out that he can live without money. He can make it. He can survive without it. And I think that's interesting. I find that really interesting. And, and, the, and the horror of that, the tragedy of that, is it takes the golden thing to come back, kidnap him, and brainwash that out of him and rob him of that. As he yeah. says, they, they're, they're rescuing me from my hippie dream. Yeah, and it's crazy because, again, like you said, it, it, but it goes back to the interpersonal relationship. It goes back to love and desire and, and, you know, I, again, I, I feel like Doc looks at Shasta in a certain light in a way I think specifically men do this. I mean, I'll tell you a story real quick. I was in high school. There was a girl I had a crush on. I, I liked this girl. She was really cool. She was really interesting. Uh, I grew up in a small town, so my high school class was maybe 100 people. It was maybe 12 Black people in this town. And a lot of the things that I was interested in in high school weren't stereotypical traditional things that people thought a black kid should be interested in. So I was right into grunge music and, and I was into like new wave and I was into different types of uh, experimental comic books and shit. And this, this girl was black and she was into all that. And we bonded over that. We were cool. And I had a crush on her and I was shy and it was unrequited, but I, I put her on this pedestal and um, she started dating one of our local tough guys. And I was so angry. I was angry with him and I was angry at her. 
and it was jealousy and 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 hurt and and immaturity and stuff but it was also i was sort of offended by it because i had put her in this category i had idealized her and i realized i wasn't looking at her as a person or as a girl or a young woman i was looking at her because the things that she liked were the things i liked so you should be my woman because we like the same things and that's an incredibly misogynistic and chauvinistic way to look at people like anybody but especially somebody that you profess to love you know to me love is really accepting someone for all their flaws all their foibles all their faults looking past those and saying hey you you fucked up i fucked up i love you anyway and i don't know if doc can do that with shasta and so to go back to the team we started talking about at the top of the hour he that sex scene is frenzied because yeah he's turned on he's passionate but he's also a little angry he's angry at himself he's angry at her he's kind of disgusted and he's also kind of sad because she's right and he knows she's right and i think at the end of the movie or the end of the scene specifically he feels more of that sadness he feels more of that shame that you know man bigfoot wasn't right about me but bigfoot also knows me better than i know myself and so and he yells at Bigfoot, you know, you almost got me killed. And, and Bigfoot, like you said, says that line, I've seen you at the, at the range, you can handle yourself. But what that also is saying is not just about guns. It's not just about being able to, uh, you know, line up your shot and adjust for the win. There's something Bigfoot sees in Doc that he sees in himself. And that freaks Doc the fuck out. You hit it. You killed it. You nailed it. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. God. I can't think of a better I can't think of a better idea moment theme to end on than that right there. That's yeah. that's perfect. And that's so you're so right. Oh. Well, man, this has been so much fun. Gosh, thank I, you I was gonna say me. the same thing, man. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. This has been an absolute blast, especially just talking crime shit with you. Uh you are a man after my own heart, or vice versa. And so talking about this with you has been an absolute blast. And anyone out there who's listening who has not read it, the author is S.A. Cosby. The book is Blacktop Wasteland, story of the best wheelman in the American Southeast. It is an incredible, incredible thriller. It is an incredibly human crime story. It is, and I, and I'm not saying this because he's looking at me right now. I'm not saying this to his <laughs> ass. It is as thrilling as any crime film you're going to see, it, the, the level of action, the level of humanity, the heart, the, the, the harrowing nature, I cannot seem, I cannot sing or scream or otherwise spread the praises of this novel enough. Blacktop Wasteland. If you read a book this year, if you're one of those people, you don't read them a lot, make it this one. If you read a lot of them, add this to the list. I promise you, it you were going to thank me. You're going to thank him. It's an amazing book. And again, it, it's been my favorite read, a uh, uh, favorite new book of this year. I, I, I can't, I can't imagine something topping it uh, this year for me. Oh man. It's, thank it's you. Absolutely. So amazing, man. So, and, and, hey, so and Hey, thank you for coming on. And again, thank you for reaching the apex of your career with me <laughs> by doing a guest spot on um, Increment Vice. It doesn't get much higher, much better than that. I'm gonna say. This is it, man. I'm, I'm probably go home and have a drink and just uh, lamp, you know, lament how the, the rest of my life 
life will be a spent in ennui because I won't be able to have anything about this. So. Well, hey, the episode lives on, so you can just keep replaying it and live in the past like Doc. Like Doc and Shasta, live in the past. Just keep playing this on Spotify or something. <laughs> I will, man. I'll become You're like always going to be um, right here. A male Mrs. Harrisham just playing this over on loop. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Sean, again, thank you so, so much for coming. Thank you on. so much for having me, man. This was a blast. Thank you so much. And thanks to everybody for listening. And please come back next week and join me and a very special returning guest as we spend the last few dollars of Shasta Faye Hepworth's credit card. Sean sure knows a thing or three about a thing or two. And boy, he had Doc's number from the start. The oversized heart, the funky masculinity, the dead eye aim, and the bloodhound's nose. And how all that adds up to a P.I. as classic as Sam Spade or Easy Rollins, if maybe a little shaggier and smellier. But is Doc's gum sandal connection to those gumshoes of the past enough to get him through the karmic crucible of Puck Beaverton and Adrian Prussia? How about the golden fang itself? Or just the goddamn heartache of Shasta Faye Hepworth? Guess we'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.